called us to be his witnesses right where we are in whatever context that God has placed us right now. But we all also as the church are called to reach the nations. And we're beginning to see the gospel of Jesus Christ as we track through the narrative of the book of Acts. We're beginning to see that gospel spread as it was in Judea first. And we had the persecution of the church there in Acts chapter 8 and uh, 8 and 9. And then we see the great conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and he becomes the missionary on, uh, uh, to the Gentiles, an apostle unto the Gentiles. And so we start to see the church at Antioch as it launches Paul and Barnabas out. They began taking the gospel to Asia Minor. It enters into parts of Europe. Eventually, we know it's going to get to Rome. And ever since then, the gospel has been spreading westward all the way around the world. There's a fascinating thing. I didn't plan on sharing this, but I will share it. Many of the believers in China believe that it is their personal calling and, and purpose in life to continue to take the gospel all the way back to Jerusalem. So you think about the way that Christianity has spread historically around the globe. It has spread westward. So it went from Jerusalem to Asia Minor to Rome to parts of Europe to the Americas. And then it's making its way back now to where the church in China is on fire under duress and persecution. They are, there's a revival breaking out in parts of China. Now we're seeing it in parts of the Arab world among many Muslims. And so there's a great desire for people in China to see the gospel continue to go all the way back to Jerusalem. And so that's the picture of the gospel as it circumvents the entire globe. And they believe, just, a, just an interesting fact, I read a, a, a book in seminary called Back to Jerusalem. And they believe that when the gospel fulfills its purpose and makes it way, its way back to Jerusalem is when the Lord Jesus will eventually return to claim his kingdom here on earth. So it's a kind of an interesting concept if you want to look more into that. But we're looking into Acts 17 this morning, and we're going to spend probably the next two, maybe three weeks on the remainder of Acts uh, chapter 17 as Paul makes his way into Athens. Okay, and so a uh, very interesting passage. We're only going to look at about six verses this morning. And so if you have a copy of God's word, let's check out Acts 17 this morning, picking up in verse 16. Just to give you a little bit of a background, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they have been from Philippi and they were in Thessalonica. They suffered persecution there. They went to Berea. Uh, the, the Jews in Thessalonica came to Berea to stir, instigate more persecution there. And the brothers there in Berea sent Paul to Athens alone. And so Timothy and Silas are still in Berea and Paul is waiting for them to get there. So y'all kind of put yourself in Paul's shoes for a minute He's had companionship, human companionship, ever since he left to go on his missionary journey. But now he finds himself in the midst of the pagan Mecca, the cultural Mecca of paganism and polytheism, which is Athens, Greece. And that's where the story picks up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and, in the, and, and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign, foreign divinities or foreign gods. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. 
uh, excuse me, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So what I want to share with you this morning is really how Paul is placed in a unique opportunity here in Athens to make the most of a very um, divine appointment for him to have a platform that he probably would not normally get. And we're going to see how he gets there. And then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how he actually handles that opportunity as he shares with the philosophers there on Mars Hill in Greece. But the first thing I want to share with you, the title of the message is Making the Most of Every Opportunity for the Days Are Evil. The first thing I would like to share with you this morning is that like Paul, true believers in Christ represent the overwhelming minority in today's culture. I can remember several years ago, uh, I can't remember exactly what year, but, but President Obama was in office at the time, and he made a speech, and he said this. He said that we are no longer living in a Christian nation, but we're in a post-Christian nation. And I can remember so many people just were in up, uproar and outrage about this particular statement. But in, when some of the few times in his uh, time in office, I actually was in total agreement with President Obama for that particular statement. Why? Because we don't live in a Christian nation anymore. I know that may stun some of you or that may shock some of you, but really most of you probably understand what, what, I'm, what I'm saying and where I'm coming from. Because if you look at true believers in our culture, in the, and again, we're talking North American culture, the context that we live in today. If you look at the true believers, we are a minority today. The longer that I live and the more that I see in this culture, I begin to even think sometimes maybe we're fewer in number than what we even really think. I know uh, Barna puts out research studies all the time, and, and I'm not one of these guys that always depends on statistics and things like that, but in some of the recent Barna research studies that, that interview people and poll them according to evangelical sound doctrine, doctrinal beliefs that we would identify as evangelical beliefs, some of the latest polls show that maybe perhaps less than 10% of the U.S. population today is evangelical in nature. Now, that doesn't mean that less than 10% attend church or less than 10% are religious or less than 10% are spiritual. But when you begin to ask them sound uh, questions about essential doctrines of the faith that we've always held to in the church, it really comes down to a small minority, a small percentage in the culture today. Now, many of you probably grew up in the Bible Belt and if you grew up maybe 50 years ago in the Bible, there may have been a place in time when the majority of your community, the majority of your neighborhood were God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing people. That may have been the context that you perhaps grew up in. And if it wasn't a majority, at least an overwhelming majority of people respected the ways of the church or at least respected the name of Jesus or at least respected the Bible as authoritative in some sense of the word. But I'm going to tell you something, guys. The days of Andy Griffith and Leave it to Beaver, they're no longer here. We live in a different time. We live in a different culture today. I don't know a single committed follower of Jesus Christ today who has not felt alone at some point in their journey. 
If you're here today and you're pursuing Jesus and you're serious about following and committed your life to Christ, there will come points and places in your time. Everybody in this room probably at some point has experienced the feeling of loneliness, that you're in the overwhelming minority, and that you feel the pressure of the culture just building around you. But you know what? If we think about it, that's really nothing new under the sun, is it? I mean, let's go back and think about Noah and his family. They were the only family left in, a, in, the, in, in their perverse and godless generation that God preserved. So they most, most definitely were a minority as God saved them on the ark. I think about the prophet Elijah, who is famous for his, his plea to God, Lord, I'm the only one left of your prophets. Of course, God had 7,000 others who had not bowed to, the, uh, to worship the God of Baal. But even at that time, as Jezebel was chasing Elijah and he was fearing for his life and he went to hide in Mount Horeb there on Mount Sinai and, and, and plead to God, he, he felt like he was all alone. I think about other great patriarchs of the faith as you think about Jeremiah who preached relentlessly some things for maybe some t- up to 50 years of his ministry preaching to the people in Judea and Jerusalem and yet he was mocked and ridiculed and persecuted and we don't see really any movement, any response to the, his own people as he preached faithfully for decades. Don't you know Jeremiah felt all alone? Think about Daniel in the lion's den. Think about David on hiding in caves and fleeing from King Saul. I just think about all of the prophets and the saints of old. I think about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he was left alone in the garden as his, as his disciples scattered and left him there to be arrested and then he faced trial alone and then he was tortured and mocked alone and then he went and was nailed to the cross and as he hung there, he hung there alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think about John on the island of Patmos as he was exiled there alone. And here we have Paul finding himself in a very similar situation as his companions had been left in Berea and now he is just launched into this godless pagan culture. He's in the middle of Athens, which is the cultural mecca of paganism and polytheism, and he is there all along. But the thing that we all know, and you've probably already thought this as I've been sharing this this morning, is that there's really never a point for any Christian where we are truly alone. You see, don't you know Paul is drawn from those wonderful truths of the Lord Jesus Christ where he would say, I will be with you always, even until the end of this godless age. The, the, the promises of the scriptures where the Lord says, never will I leave you or forsake you. And so here we have Paul, and, and I just want to encourage any of you today, if you're ever in a situation, or maybe you're in a current situation at your work or in your neighborhood or, or in your family or whatever it may be, and you feel like you're the only believer, you're the only one there, remember, you're not alone. And of course, that's why we gather here today, is, and that's why we encourage each other as believers on a regular basis to remind each other that we're not alone. And we do need that human companionship and it is so very very important so just picture Paul so now he's he's walking the streets of Athens he's there alone he's looking around he sees all of the godlessness he sees all of the pagan idolatry and he's reminded of how corrupt and utterly depraved this culture is and like Athens our culture is immersed in gross idolatry now let's just ask this question What is an idol? That's a good question. Now, when I say the word idol, probably many of you immediately go to a statue 
or some type of an emblem or figure or monument that is represented. It's a physical representation of a spiritual being. It's what an idol really is. And I shared this with you guys many weeks ago as we talked about Jesus above other gods and how the, the, the physical representations of these statues made out of wood or stone or, or um, clay or whatever it was that they were made of, yes, they, they became synonymous with the gods of Greece, all of these poly, the polytheistic gods of Greece. That, that some say there were thousands of idols in Athens. As you walk the streets, I mean, you couldn't turn around without bumping into another god. One, one Greek uh, historian said there were more gods in Athens than men. But when you think about this idol, never forget that the, that the physical representations always had a supernatural, spiritual being behind it. And, and the Greeks were very aware of this. They were very superstitious. They were very spiritual. They were seeking the favor of the gods. Now, when I say gods, little g gods, I want to clarify what I'm talking about and what Paul says. And if you go back and listen to my message from weeks ago, what, what it really boils down to is that they were very spiritual in nature. They weren't just worshiping idols of wood and stone. Guess what? They were worshiping demons. They were sacrificing to demons. They were worshiping demons. They were practicing all of their immorality and profane acts of wickedness as they did this. And they were appealing to the gods to bless them or give them favor or maybe to curse someone else or whatever it may be. But these are real supernatural entities that they're appealing to and worshiping. So let's not forget that. These are not imaginary beings. That's why the, uh, the Lord said in the Ten Commandments, what did He say? You shall have no other... God's before me. God is not telling us that we shouldn't have any imaginary beings before me. He's literally saying, don't worship any other spiritual, powerful, supernatural being other than me. That includes Satan, demons, all of these other lesser gods, the heathen gods of, of the nations that they bow down to and sacrifice to. He's saying, don't have any other God before me because these are real spiritual beings that will destroy you. And leads you into death and destruction. And that's what Paul is feeling as he walks throughout Athens and he's looking around. And he's seeing all of this godlessness and he's seeing all of these idols. And his spirit, it says, is provoked within him. Now, in general, let me give you a good definition of an idol. An idol is anything or anyone that we love, admire, cherish, or give preference to before God. Pastor and author Tim Keller says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. He says, is anything you seek to give, excuse me, is anything you seek to give you what only God can give? Now let's think about our culture for just a second. Paul walked around Athens, which was the epicenter of idolatry. I think the United States of America right now is pretty close to what he experienced then. Let me just name a few. We have the idols of entertainment. Think about this. When you walk into a person's house today in modern America, what is typically the centerpiece of that home? Television, isn't it? Has that ever struck any of you? That we, we, we arrange our entire livelihoods and homes around an idol. Now, that can be used for good. Don't get me wrong. We can watch many good things on television. But for the majority of us, it's probably having to fight all constantly the idolatry that is being portrayed on that idiot box, as I like to call it. You know what the word amusement means? We are a culture of amusement. We want to be what? 
Amused. Do you know what the word literally means? Amused. It means you don't think. It means the absence of thought. In other words, we're trying to find so many different ways in our culture to escape reality. And TV and entertainment and the video game culture and all that kind of stuff that is just sucking the life out of so many people. That is exactly some of the idols that we're fighting in our culture today so that we don't have to think and engage our minds. Let's just escape. We could look at sports. I love sports. One, one guy, Vody Balkum, said, he says that we should be teaching our kids to keep, instead of teaching our kids to keep their eye on the ball, we should be teaching our kids, kids to keep their eyes on the Lord. So before we teach our kids something about sports and we make their lives about sports, and that's really kind of the culture that I grew up in, sports became an idol in my life. And if you just go and you look at the word fan, the word fan literally means a fanatic. And you don't have to look very far when you watch soccer or football or baseball or basketball. When you see how emotionally uh, just engaged these people get when it comes to sports, they are fanatical. They elevate sports and their team and their... I mean, I know people that will be devastated for days and even weeks if their team loses the big game. That should tell us right there that sports can easily become an idol. And even as your little kids, guys, just be wise about how you train them. It's okay to play sports uh, as they're young and and to give them that that foundation. Again, I love sports more than anything else, but the minute that it begins to cross over and take the place of God, anything that becomes more important than God becomes a what? becomes an idol. You could do hunting and fishing, people that are obsessed with those things. I think about drugs and alcohol. The way drugs and alcohol become an idol is that when we turn to substances, again, to escape reality, to relieve stress, or to numb emotional pain, we turn to those things before we turn to who? But turn to God. You see, those, that's when those things become an idol. They take the place of God. Only God is supposed to give us peace. Only God is supposed to relieve our anxiety. Only God is supposed to heal our emotional pain. But drugs and alcohol takes the place of God. You look at the sex-saturated culture that we live in. I don't have to say much about that. I preached on that several weeks ago. But just the idolatry of sexual immorality in our culture from one end of the spectrum to the other, it is gross immorality. You know that even academics in school can become idolatry. I know some parents that push their kids so, so hard, and I'm pro-education. I'm pro-academics. Don't get me wrong. I want our kids to do their very best in school. But sometimes we put school and we, t- we, and we grill them to study their books more than we tell them to study their Bibles. Guys, any time that those things begin to take the place of God, they can cross over into idolatry. And I could just name so many more. Materialism, the love of money, the desire to be rich. We can get into food. (laughs) There's another temple on every corner where we go to worship at the idol of food. I mean, my goodness. Politics, even patriotism. Some people think the American flag should be above the cross. Hey, let's fly the flag above the cross. No, it's just the other way around. It's the cross of Christ that should be above anything else in our lives. But sometimes we take patriotism to that next level and we're more American than we are Christian. I'm a patriot and I love America, but it shouldn't become an idol. And guys, there's so many others. I don't have time to name them. But as Paul is walking through Athens, I want to ask you, in the same way that he was provoked, there has to be something in our attitude in our heart that overcomes spiritual complacency. You see, when I see Paul, he was not spiritually complacent as he walked through the streets of Athens. There was something going on in his heart that provoked him to anger. That word provoked, it means he was emotionally charged. He was stirred up in his spirit. He became angry 
when he saw the depth of depravity there of the people of Athens. So there's two primary attitudes that should help us overcome our spiritual complacency. And we're going to get into that in just a second. Let me read this quote from uh, an author, uh, Dr. Barnes. Listen to what he said. Athens had the most splendid architecture. It was more brilliant in science, more beautiful in the arts than any other city of the world, perhaps more than all of the rest of the cities of the world combined. Guys, this was a beautiful city. Art, science, architecture. Now listen to what he says. Yet there's no account that the mind of Paul was filled with admiration. There's no record that he spent his time examining the works of art. There's no evidence that he forgot his higher purpose in this idle and useless contemplation of temples and the statues and the idols. His was a Christian mind. He contemplated all this with a Christian heart, and that heart was deeply affected in view of the amazing guilt of a people who were ignorant of the one true God and had filled their city with idols. And in the midst of all their splendor and luxury, they were going down to destruction. You know, we can be that way as well as Christians. Sometimes we can become admirers of the beautiful things, the art and sciences and architecture and sports and all these things that that the world has to offer instead of seeing the world through the eyes of God and understanding how God, uh, excuse me, understanding how the enemy has used all of these things to appeal to people and to draw people and attract them to himself, which was the case here in Athens. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Does anything move us anymore? Like, I had to ask myself this question. Like, when is the last time I was angry, provoked to anger, because I was just so overwhelmingly disgusted with this perverse generation, with this corrupt culture? When is the last time you turned off the TV when they said GD for the 15th time? I have to ask myself, that. how many times have we been, you know, how, how long are we going to be desensitized to the corrupt culture as they blaspheme our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as they take the Lord's name in vain over and over and over again, and we sit there and watch it and allow it and be desensitized to it and become numb to it, and we don't even get angry anymore. It's like the culture has, has conditioned us to, to sit back and to keep our mouths shut for so long that we've kind of forgotten who we are and who we stand for anymore. I really see that. I see that in my own life. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself. And it's the way that the culture desensitizes us and conditions us to where we forget and we become spiritually complacent in this corrupt culture. When is the last time you were provoked and you were so sick of just allowing to see the things that we see and allowing to, 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 uh, the culture to do the things that it does and just to throw its face in the, in, in the eyes of God and to just have disregard for anything holy anymore. I really think that's where we are in many ways. I think there's two things that we got to reclaim if we're going to overcome spiritual complacency. The first is... We must have a relentless zeal for God's glory. Do you know why Paul was angry? Because he was zealous for God's glory. 
Paul is out there all alone. He doesn't know anybody from Adam. And he's walking around in this godless generation. He's walking around in this perverse culture. And it just, it just gets all over him. And he can't remain silent anymore. He can't ignore it anymore. Because here's what's happening. Paul recognizes this one thing. He's saying all of these false heathen gods that the, 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 the Greek culture is worshiping. You see, they're blaspheming my God's name. They're taking my God's name and they're blaspheming it and they're turning it into something profane and immoral and disgusting and and, uh, idolatrous. And it just got all over Paul. And he's saying not only that, but he's saying the glory that is only due God and God alone. You see all these other false gods, they're robbing God of his what? Of his glory. They're trying to take what only belongs to God and they're trying to take it for themselves. These demonic spiritual beings that these heathen Greek people are worshiping. These false gods. And Paul is overcome with zeal. He's angry. He's zealous for God's glory. He's more concerned about God's glory than man's opinion. And I think that we have to get back to a place of that. We have to be more concerned about God's glory than what man thinks of us. And when we get back to that place, then we will become more sensitive to what's really happening around us. But there's another thing that we have to cultivate in our lives, and that's a true relentless love for humanity. Because I believe that in the midst of Paul's anger, I think he was also heartbroken. Because he looked around the streets of Athens, and what did he see? He saw a sea of lost people. And he said, left to their own devices, these people are following the wide and broad way that leads to what? That leads to destruction. And unless God intervenes and they hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to forsake and renounce all of these false gods and they trust in Jesus Christ alone for their forgiveness and their salvation, all of these people that are walking the streets of Greece, they may seem happy, they may seem wealthy, they may have all of their lives put together the way that they think they should be, and yet they're headed down a path of destruction and damnation. And so Paul was moved in his spirit because he had a true love for humanity. Brandon Heath sings a song that I really like, and he says, Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see everything that I've been missing. Give me your eyes. Give me your love for humanity. What a great song. I think that, you know what, guys, if, we're, if we've been desensitized, I'm guilty. If we've been conditioned to allow this godless and perverse culture to just continue to do what it's doing without us having a zeal, I think maybe where we need to start is to stop and say, God, I pray that you just give me your, give me your eyes for just a second. Just think about it. What if we were really to see the world around us, our neighbors, our community, our culture, our nation, if we really saw them with God's eyes, For the very first time. Don't you think that would change us? I absolutely believe it would change you and it would change me. So we see Paul being provoked. We see him having a zeal for God's glory. We see him having a true love for humanity. So he's so provoked. And it says in Acts 17, 7. Excuse me, 17, 17. Look at what it says. After he's provoked, he's moved into action. So it's not that that he gets emotional, he gets angry, but he goes and does something about it. What does he do? It says he reasoned. He reasoned. 
He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the Jewish house of worship. He goes to the marketplace. Where is that? He goes to Walmart and Kroger. That's where he goes. It's the marketplace. He goes to the mall. And he begins to reason. Let me encourage you this morning, church. We must no longer allow the culture to silence our voice of reason in the sea of insanity. Let me say that again. We must no longer allow this culture to silence our voice of reason in the sea of insanity. Paul used reason and logic and simple truth as he preached the the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was willing to meet people where they are. And the thing about Greek culture, I will give Greeks this. I think they were more noble in character than even our culture is today because the Greeks at least appreciated logic and reason. If you came to them with a logical argument or a reasonable um, argument or debate, they were willing to at least what? They were at least willing to listen to you. Hey guys, logic and reason really don't have any place in our culture anymore. We just have thrown logic and reason out the way. Everything that I see, again, and you have to be careful about just believing that everything that you see in the media is representative of what our culture is really like. But especially some of you in in our younger generation, guys, let me speak to you for just a second. You can't allow your emotional feelings to determine what your truth is in your life. You see, we are very much emotional and feeling driven in this culture today. We throw logic and reason out together, all out the window altogether. It's just about how I what? How I feel. Feelings are very misleading. Feelings come and feelings go. And yet we are determining sometimes our entire lives just simply on how we feel, whether it be for that time or whether it be for a long-term extended period of time. But our culture is a culture that dominates with feelings and emotions. Guys, we have a voice of reason. The Bible is a reasonable book. The gospel is a reasonable proclamation of faith. Our faith is a reasonable faith that lines up with logic and the laws of logic. And we need to use those logical arguments when we begin to engage people in our culture. Now, our culture has lost its mind. I'm just going to give you a few examples. So, we ban soda from schools, but we make condoms widely available. Because somewhere along the way, corn syrup becomes a more serious matter for young, youngsters than premarital sex. We have girls who are now forced to compete against biological boys in athletics because those boys have a mental illness and they identify as a girl. Did y'all just hear what I said? Does that not think we're at a place in our culture where we've lost our minds? We let high school boys and grown men who identify as female use the same women's restroom facilities. Thank God I don't have a daughter. I mean, this is a reality. If you have a daughter, a young daughter today, are you going to let some freak, some some guy identifying as a female that day go into the restroom with your 10-year-old daughter? But we're told as the church to step back, oh, we we can't go there. You're being judgmental. You're being bigoted. You're being biased. We've lost our minds. I read this just the other day. Two police officers were forced to leave Starbucks after a customer complained that they didn't feel safe. What? 
Hold on a second. Two police officers were forced to leave Starbucks because a customer didn't feel safe. We'll chide a pregnant mother for smoking because it may harm her child, but we will celebrate when she goes to the abortion clinic to get that same child dismembered. This is one that gets me right here. You can be fined thousands of dollars today for harming the endangered species of a turtle egg because that turtle egg inside that egg is what? Life. There's life inside that turtle egg. But if you harm that turtle egg today, you'll be fined thousands of dollars for harming that endangered species. But you can go get an abortion. You can go kill a child inside a mother's womb because that's not life. At least that's what they want you to believe. You can't teach kids in public schools that we came from God as the creator, but you can teach them that we came from a rock. Seriously. A citizen who wants to keep his hard-earned money is greedy, but a politician who wants to take his wealth and give it away is generous. And don't get me started on Hollywood. I'm so sick of Al Gore trying to tell me that I'm leaving a carbon footprint and causing global warming when he hops on his Learjet and flies all across the country to make $300,000 for every little speech that he gives as he leaves the biggest carbon footprint that any of us combined put together. And by the way, Alyssa Milano and Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift, nobody cares what you think. Who cares what a Hollywood person thinks? You have no, you're out of touch with reality. Nobody cares. But yeah, we're supposed to listen to them like they have the answers. Go boycott Georgia. I don't care. Stay in Hollywood. I don't care. I mean, we've, we've so con- been so conditioned to keep our mouths shut that we have lost our minds. This is a good one. We, we pull the Bible and the Ten Commandments out of the public schools, but what's the first thing you get when you go to jail? You get a Bible. We won't give it to you when you're a kid, but after your life's a mess and you go to jail, we'll give you a Bible then. And here's the last one. We're told to be tolerant of all beliefs and to not to judge anyone except people who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. Insanity. Our culture has gone insane. We have a voice of reason. What are we doing about it? Now look, you can take to Facebook. I don't care if that's the way you want to go. You can have conversations with your neighbors. You can talk to the people at your workplace. Students, you can talk to your classmates about this kind of stuff. If you want to go street preach, go street preach. That's what Paul's doing. It doesn't matter to me, but the thing is, is we need to be standing up and not allowing the intimidation for us to be silenced anymore because, guys, the world is insane and they are completely deceived and we're the ones that have the truth and the voice of reason. We've got to be willing to sound the alarm. Amen. Two more. Don't be intimidated by worldly vain philosophy. I'm not going to get into a lot of the Stoics and the Epicureans today because we're going to spend more time next week talking about who are the Stoics and the Epicureans. Let me just give you a brief background about who these two different groups of philosophers were. The Stoics, um, you could say that they fell more into a very calculated group of people. They did believe 
in the afterlife. They did believe in the gods. They were very spiritual in nature. They were very legalistic in, in their approach. If you've ever seen the statue of the Greek god, he's, he's holding his chin. And he's looking down like that. That's, that's a statue representative of the Stoic philosophy. Zeno was, was the founder of the Stoics. And so they believed that emotion was not a good thing, that, that you're just kind of trying to eliminate all passion, eliminate all emotion. You're supposed to be reasonable. And again, that, that reason is why Paul uses reason with the Stoics, and you'll see that next time. And so uh, they, they believed that free will was an illusion, that everything was determined, everything was fatalistic in a sense. It's like the gods have determined everything, so whatever comes, you just kind of have to accept it and don't get too emotional about it. That, that's your Stoic group. The Epicureans, on the other hand, were more of the hakuna matata, right? It means what? It means no worries, right? Don't worry, be happy. That every, the, the, There's really no uh, identification with spiritual things. The, the material world is really all that there is. And so really their, their whole philosophy was eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may, we may die. They, they were very much associated with hedonism. I mean, the, their greatest virtue for an Epicurean was... Whatever makes you feel good, do it. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, there's really nothing new under the sun. And so you see Paul, and, and he kind of gets engaged in these, um, with these Stoics and these Epicureans, and we'll learn more about them next time. But they call him, they say, let's find out what this babbler wants to say. Now, if you know your Greek or you get a little bit deeper in the study, that word babbler is a derogatory term. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, let's hear what this fool has to say. Let, let's entertain him for a little while. You know what I think they were doing? I think they were willing to take him and bring him to Mars Hill, not so necessarily they could hear what he had to say, but that, so they could make what? Make fun of him. You know, they looked down, they had this intellectual snobbery, this, this not superior knowledge, and, you know, it's a lot of what you see in our universities today. People that sit up in their ivory towers and they know better than everybody else and they're the smartest person in the room and they've got it all figured out and yet they're living lives of just total immorality. But, but you know, we're supposed to listen to them. And so the thing is, is that Paul could, could have easily been intimidated. He was probably ridiculed. And that's what happens in our culture today. And I need to just encourage you guys to stop being intimidated by this worldly and vain philosophy. People who want to talk down to us or um, censor what we say. I'm, I'm telling you, that, that's, that's the next big thing in social media. If y'all watch carefully, here's what's happening. They're starting to censor conservative and Christian views more and more and more and more. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, they're all converging to try to keep silent the truth. They want to they intimidate. They want to censor. They want to silence. It's happening more and more and more. But here's what Paul said. Paul says, Jews demand a sign, but Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ and Him crucified. It's a stumbling block for Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, for a Gentile in that day who all they wanted to do was seek endless wisdom. All they wanted to do was acquire more knowledge. They just wanted to learn something new. But they didn't want to do anything with it. They lived lives of complete waste. Because all they wanted to do was accumulate knowledge just so they could be smarter than the next man. But they had no desire to live according to the glory of God. And Paul's saying, if you preach the gospel to these, those kind of people, they're going to think you're a fool. Guys, we need to get used to being called what? Fools. For Christ's sake. 
The message of the gospel to the world is a foolish message. It doesn't make sense to them. They're like, what are you talking about? Some guy had to die on a cross. Man, that's, that's crazy. What are you talking about? I'm a sinner. I'm a good person, man. You're crazy. I'm not a sinner. They don't want to hear it. It's foolishness to them. But we cannot be intimidated and we cannot allow them to silence us. But here's the last thing I'm going to share as we close. We must take advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now let's think about Paul for just a second. Paul went from walking the streets of Athens alone without his best friends, but because he was provoked in his spirit and he couldn't remain silent any longer, he he goes and he begins to meet people where they are. And he begins to use his voice of reason. And he begins to share the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he caught the attention of some of these philosophers. And so what do they do? They say, hey man, we want to invite you to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Now what was that? It was, the, it was the center of Athens. It was on a hill. And it was basically this. It was like having every university board president, the Supreme Court, and every theologian that is respected in Athens. And they all came together to sit as judges in that one place. These were the highest, the, the best, the most intellectual people, the most religious people, the, the greatest philosophers in Athens. They all came to this one spot to share all of these new ideas. Now think about it. Had Paul remained silent... Would he have ever been up on Mars Hill? He never would have made it up there. He never would have been invited. He had the opportunity of a lifetime. And here's the principle. Think about it. As our worship team wants to come on up, here's the principle. That if you will be faithful with little, what will happen? God will give you much more. Let me say that again, guys. If you will be faithful with the little bit that you have, the little bit of influence that you have, you never know, but God may put you in a position or give you an opportunity or put you on a platform that you never dreamed of because he says, if, you can, if I can trust you with your neighbor, if I can trust you with your classmate, if I can trust you with your coworker, if I can trust you with your family member that you know is lost, if I can trust you with just a little bit, then God may give you so much more. So many more opportunities, such a greater platform or an opportunity. I'm going to lead you with these words, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And this is a message to the church in America. You ready? To you and me. You ready? Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Hey, guys, it's time for the church in America to what? Wake up. Wake up. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the opportunity because the days are evil. All I'm going to pray right now is that God would give us his eyes for just one second. That right right where you're sitting right now, that he would begin to give us his eyes and allow us to see the world around us as he sees it. And I think that if if we'll be able to do that, maybe for a day, maybe for a week, it's going to radically change the way that we act. It's radically going to change the way that we live. And so would you just pray that simple prayer with me today as we sing the greatest name that's ever been named, Lord Jesus. I pray in your name through your Holy Spirit 
that you would open our eyes to see the world, our neighbors, this culture with your eyes. Give us your eyes, Lord, just for one second so that we may see and that we may have a greater love for humanity. Because, God, the reality is is that I was once lost, a wretch. And yet, Lord, you saved a wretch like me. You opened my eyes. You, You snatched me out of the pit. You set my feet upon solid ground, Lord, because of your mercy and grace, Lord. So it's not because we're better than anyone else, Lord. It's because we know the Savior, and we know that there's only one way for life and hope and salvation. So have mercy upon us, God. Give us your eyes for one second. And Lord, help us to stand up and wake up for the days are evil. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come forward if you need prayer. Come forward if you need to talk.